0: It's time for the tactics meeting, and today we're lucky to have Angie Perez from CTEH here to talk to us about safety and community air monitoring, industrial hygiene. Angie, welcome to the program. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. You're a neighbor of mine right there across the Columbia River in Portland. I'm up in Camas, Washington now.
1: Very good. I know, and we finally have a nice reprieve from our our weather, although it's cold outside. So. Yeah, it's chilly. Yes, it is.
0: Super, super cold. Well, you're the, the kind of the local point of contact for CTH. Uh,
1: That's right. Uh,
0: I, in my role as the response manager for the Washington State Maritime Cooperative, recently executed a letter of intent with CTH in order to provide uh, safety support, uh, air monitoring, community air monitoring. Uh, and that that kind of thing. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to come and talk to you about what those kinds of tasks are, wh- what kind of services CTH offers, and uh, get to know you a little bit.
1: Hey, that's fantastic. Yeah, Welcome to the team,
0: Dan. That's awesome. So <laughs> how did you be, get involved in the oil spill response world? It's such a tiny little niche community.
1: Isn't it though? It's so, I've actually, um, really enjoyed seeing the same friendly faces over and over at the Northwest Area Committee meetings at various drills and responses, um, here in the Pacific Northwest and even at actual incidents. So it's, it is a very small, but, um, knowledgeable and friendly community. So it's been great. And actually my foray into this sector has been recent. So I joined CTEH a little over four years ago. Um, Before that, I was with a different consulting firm for about nine years and did not have an emergency response uh, response component to my work. It was more litigation uh, focused and some um, occupational um, uh, exposure reconstruction work, so simulation studies and workplace simulation studies. And so this has been a steep, but very enjoyable learning curve um, to enter into the emergency response world. Uh, before that, I I was um, I got my Ph.D. at Oregon State University. My PhD is in toxicology, and after that, I did a postdoc in pharmaceutical chemistry at the University of California, San Francisco, and was at a crossroads after postdocing. Um, you know, do I want to go into academia? I think I remember the time, Dan. So this was right around, you know, 2009, 2008. And the the country was in a recession. So it was an interesting time to be looking for a job. Um, so I ended up going into consulting and have never looked back on that decision. So it's no, no day is the same as the last day, as you know, and probably can appreciate um, there. It's never a dull moment. And um, I've really, really enjoyed you know, my, my time and I've learned a lot at all these companies. Um, The emergency response work has been a a very interesting um, component in addition to my professional experience. I started at CTEH, and I think it was a week after I started. I'd finished all of my training, which is extensive at CTEH. They have, you know, there's many, many, many hours, your HAZWOPER training, all of your um, chemical-specific trainings, et cetera. Um, I finished that and and I got a call and he said, hey, Angie, can you um, go to sample for lead down for a company um, along the Portland Harbor, one of the terminals? Can you go and do some lead sampling down there? So it was not only air monitoring, but wipe sampling, et cetera. There was some interviewing of personnel. Uh, We did some palm swipes after certain activities. And so it was kind of trial by fire. It was, it was a fabulous experience. And I thought to myself, ah, this is this is what I should have been doing all along. <laughs> really, really happy for it.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about CTEH's uh, monitoring capabilities? Yeah.
1: T- by way of introduction, CTEH um, stands for Center for Toxicology and Environmental Health. And it's an emergency response company primarily that was started. About 25 years ago, I think 1997 um, our, we had four founders um, who who started CTEH, and they their mission statement is essentially to be the, the most trusted and valuable resource to companies, governments, and communities in times of need. okay so when when you're at your worst day, we're, the goal, our goal is to help you out. So, and I love that. I mean, that speaks to the, the, is my job meaningful to me? That kind of speaks to that component um, of of my work. And so um, they they essentially help companies and governments and communities with um, disaster recovery, industrial hygiene, safety, occupational health, uh, response management to some extent, Uh, pandemic services, which we all are familiar Yeah, Technology. um, We have a a very large data and technology sector. We actually create our own software um, and our own um, emergency response um, software and data collection software. Um, And then toxicology, of course, which is where I come in. Um, I'm also a certified industrial hygienist. So we, you know, there is a lot of um, crossover between um, applied toxicology and occupational toxicology um, exposure assessment work. So that's that's pretty much one of the main functions of our, our day-to-day life uh, at CTH.
0: So, what is the difference between a toxicologist and an industrial hygienist?
1: Uh, so a toxic uh, uh, it's basically a degree. Um, so a toxicologist is someone who studies generally the, the study of poisons is toxicology, right? So the study of contaminants and how they interact with biological systems. And industrial hygiene is the study of um, exposure to contaminants in a in an usually in an occupational setting. So it's, it's more focused on um, utilization of, of tools and techniques um, to minimize exposures and to prevent um, risk of harm to individuals. And so you can see where there's a lot of crossover between those, because part of toxicology obviously is utilizing risk assessment, which includes this exposure assessment. One of the four components of risk assessment is exposure assessment. So it's it's a really nice marriage between the two um, fields of study for toxicology and industrial hygiene um, to be able to not only evaluate exposures, but then provide meaningful conclusions and information to stakeholders about their potential risk of either the workforce or the community members.
0: No, I don't see how you can possibly separate the two.
1: Right? I, know, I mean, right?
0: right? I mean, you just can't do it. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mangle this quote a little bit. Uh, it was from Paracelsus who said, "All mm-hmm. substances are poisons. There is yep. none that is not a poison. The difference between a poison and a remedy is dose and duration.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: Right? The dose
1: makes the poison. That's the that's the paraphrase version. That, that's the par- paraphrase. For paracelsus, yeah. The dose makes the poison. He's the father of toxicology.
0: Right. I mean, water will kill you.
1: Salt right. will kill you. Too much sun will kill you. Too yeah. aflatoxin in peanut butter might kill you if, if you'll oh, please enough.
0: Don't. That's that can't be true. I love peanut butter.
1: <laughs> no, you you would have to eat so so much peanut butter, and you would have to contain aflatoxin, which there are regulations against that in the U.S.
0: So we rely on CTH. I I put together this uh, uh, letter of intent for CTH so that I could call you, as you point out, in time of need um, when um, we have uh, a, a worst case discharge or something akin to that where we may be uh, producing uh, v- vapors or contaminants that could uh, affect the public or responders. We did a drill uh, where you guys came out uh, a few months ago and brought some uh, area rays out and, and set them up and mm-hmm. did some, some mock monitoring can, can you talk a little bit about that kind of capability and why I'd
1: want to deploy it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. so in for for the majority of emergency responses, they they require some sort of air monitoring um, data to help inform decision making. You know, whether it's whether you've established unified command or not, Um, The airborne contamination is is the the primary immediate health risk in general in these emergency responses, and actually in non-emergency responses too. So air contamination, industrial hygiene, air contamination is is the largest source of occupational exposures is via air. So uh, for air monitoring, um, there are lots of different methods or mechanisms you can use to capture data. So, for example, a CTH, we use these handheld mobile devices. Um, We have fixed location, as you mentioned, the area arrays that you set them up somewhere, and they can live out there for a certain amount of time and collect data continuously. Um, For example, I think we have are set on um, every 15 seconds, it's collecting a data point. So you really can get a, you know, moment by moment evaluation of what kind of chemicals are in the air at that particular location. And all of that is being, um, it's called radio telemetry. It's all being sent to um, the cloud, essentially, to a data, a secure site on the cloud. And so we're able to see that data real time um, and able to share that data with available stakeholders, whether that's in a unified command and it gets put up onto the SIT stat situation statistics board or status board, um, where all of the available, you know, all of the responders can see real time what the air monitoring data are, and then they can help inform decisions, tactics, et cetera. Uh, we also have um, intrinsically safe devices if we need to enter into, um, actually, into the, um, the hot zone, if you will. Um, we have analytical sampling techniques to a lot of um, companies, not just ours. Um, a lot of them will use what they call um, their, their uh, Evacuation canisters, so our mini cans is kind of the, the trade name for those. So a canister that will take a grab sample, you can put a regulator on it and it will grab at a certain rate, so you can set them up to grab for 24 hours. And then that sample is, is now held in a sterile, um, clean canister and you can send that to the lab. and You can look at all kinds of other constituents that may not be available to you Um, and a handheld device or any of these fixed location devices. Um, So some of the other non, for example, if I want to look at volatile volatile organic carbons, I can look at um, those via my handheld meter. But if I wanted to look specifically for um, toluene or BTEX chemicals, like in, in an in individual level, I can look at, I can have those um, analyzed at the lab and they can tell me those numbers specifically. Um, there's a lot of uh, different types of dust and particulate monitoring. You and I were speaking briefly before um, about wildfires, you know, we're, we're heading into summer. So a lot of times um, those dust and particulate monitoring that those Uh, you can bring along those equipment with you. I mean, really, there's just, there's so much. There's the the, um, gas tech tubes uh, that you can take a pull sample, a grab sample for a specific type of chemical. Um, There's a lot of different tools in our toolbox to be able to evaluate for a wide breadth of types of chemical um, constituents in the air during an emergency.
0: Yeah, we yeah we were talking about wildfires. I remember, I think it was two years ago, I was down along the Columbia River in the vicinity of Hood River. You couldn't even see across the river. Mm-hmm. It was so dense, you couldn't see. And my eyes were burning.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, I was with um, one of the railroads yesterday and they were talking about um, responding to um, the fire in... Oregon that happened I think last year two years ago um what's the name of that fire
0: I don't remember the name but there were there were three or four pretty big fires and one of them was
1: one this is the biggest fire that's ever happened in the United States um ah geez it's escaping me it's it's early Dan it's early (laughs) but they they literally couldn't see you know four or five feet in front of them in in helping, it. they were part of the response effort for for this fire, and they couldn't see four to five feet in front of them because they were bringing in water water cars.
0: Yeah, I keep a half face respirator in my in my go bag, and it's not for oil spill response. It's it's for this kind of wildfire smoke or mm-hmm. or the kind of uh, particulates that might be in the air after an earthquake or something. I keep a half face sure. 3M respirator. And I think I've got R-97s on it because I bought new ones and it was all I could get, <laughs> right? You can There's all no- endeavor
1: to be as prepared as you, Dan. That's very good.
0: So it's stuck in there just in case I just in case I need. Of course, these days I've got uh, N95s, KN95s, which, by the way, that's the most brilliant name ever. Just, KN95 makes it sound like an N95. It's marketing genius.
1: It is, really is, yeah. There is, yes. I have Even lots of it... opinions that we should not talk about.
0: No, not talk about them. <laughs> KN95. OK.
1: <laughs> they're, let's just say that they're wildly variable in yes. their quality and performance. <laughs>
0: Yeah. There's no standard. I mean, you really have Mm -hmm. to consider them. They're not a respirator. They're not Mm -hmm. even close to an N95. You just have to consider them to be a face covering Mm -hmm. and, you know, and if that happens to fit you well and it gives you a sense of comfort, then
1: yes, yes.
0: Done. But otherwise it's just like the procedure masks that we're all kind of wearing. Mm -hmm. Right. So why do I, why do I want to do this kind of community? What good is this data? Why do I want to capture all of this data?
1: There are certain objectives that need to be met for air monitoring. And so, for example, if um, part of the operations team, they, they will always have their own, you know, four or five gas meters, and they'll always take those out with them. Um, that's that's to inform themselves. There may be some micro climate areas where they want to evaluate if there's, they move into on, let's say they're on water ops and they move into a section where there's high odor, you know, they're going to want to take those readings for themselves. So that's, that's one objective is to evaluate the um, air conditions um, for a specific responder, responder unit who's Involved in a task. Another objective is to create the official record um, for the incident. So, for example, um, if if you are having, and that's where you want to have um, a company who is not the responsible party, um, because you the optics of that are that you know you you want to have someone who is um objective like wholly objective um, who is going to create data that is defensible in a court of law um, who's going to um, create data based on established plans that have been utilized and have been approved by the uh, regulatory agencies whether that be state or federal regulatory agencies um, and so, that's really, there. there's air monitoring in that way, um, uh, a localized version versus the air monitoring for the incident are two separate objectives. One thing I will say is that, um, you know, if someone shows up to a site with a meter, um, you have to keep in mind too, not all meters are created equal, as you said, as you mentioned, okay? You, you don't know their maintenance schedule so if you're planning on using your data from your meter, you better make sure that your meter has been maintained equally. You better have a calibration date. You better have the calibration results. Um, your, all of your quality control results better check out. Um, did, you, did you calibrate it that day? Because before first thing we do when we get to a site is calibrate our instruments every time, every single time. Um, so, some people aren't even trained to ha- on how to read um, or correctly interpret results of an instrument. Um, for example, let's say you're trying to um, apply a correction factor, you have a VOC result and you're trying to apply a correction factor for a particular chemical. Um, so do you know how to look that up? I mean, do you know how to go to either Ray Systems or, or Honeywell systems and look up that correction factor for that result. Do you have the right lamp in your in your PID to actually see something? Um, I just Dan, this is this, I just had an example a case. It's actually a litigation case where someone was trying to look for um, ethylene dichloride in an air sample, and this ethylene dichloride requires the use of an 11-7 lamp. And these and this um, other industrial hygienist was saying that um, that you know trying to apply a correction factor using a 106 lamp, and you can't even see quote unquote see ethylene dichloride using a 106 lamp. Um, so it was a big. Can you just get the
0: ionizing potential right out of the right out of the pocket guide?
1: It is, and I think it's like 11.1 or 11.2 or something. That'll so what ten, lamp you need. a 10 six lamp is not going to have the uh, proper ionization energy to be able to see ethylene dichloride in the sample. And so it's, it's a mistake, I mean, and you, you need to be cognizant of that. So training on how to use and interpret these data is critical. And that's where, if you grab a trusted partner, so um, that's why you you know your company and and a lot of other companies will you know they'll call us so we, we know how to use our equipment um, we are able to effectively come out and not only take these readings um, but interpret them correctly and then we have a, a, a the paper trail to back up all of the quality assurance quality control meet all of the quality objectives of the incidents.
0: Well, I mean it's and it's not just the the uh, uh, PID, meaning corrections, you know, people use the LEL sensor, like, hey, as long as it's under 10%, but it's only accurate for the gas it was calibrated with.
1: That's and right. We're,
0: when we're out there measuring crude oil, crude oil is not one thing. It's thousands
1: of right. things,
0: right? So th- I can't even apply a correction factor that right i mean if i knew exactly what i was measuring for if i have my instrument calibrated with methane and i'm measuring butane i can get a correction factor for that mm-hmm. right but if i'm measuring alaska north slope crude with my instrument calibrated with methane or pentane there's no correction factor that's benzene xylene toluene well that's all right. the means really and you know whatever else is in there right
1: yeah, the, that's right. That's right. So, you, so, so you know, you
0: have to have some idea. So I kind of really want Dr. Perez looking at
1: this data, don't I? I mean, me or or there's a lot of other qualified folks that are in our group. So for sure, there's I mean, we all have the same training. So whether you um, have a Ph.D. or a C.I.H. or not everyone receives the same training. And that's the, that's the beauty of it, Dan, is that um, you could really, anyone could step into those roles, at least for to serve as a field tech, to be able to collect the data um, responsibly and effectively, and then have your offsite um, support ready to go to, to be able to interpret effectively too.
0: Mm-hmm. Washington State, recently required an update to response plans to include a piece on community air monitoring how are you going to go about community air monitoring has cth had to do work in this area
1: yes we have in fact we've been to several actual incidents now um, and utilized our plan so we updated and created a plan um for we started with um some of our select some of our clients who who wanted to get ahead of the, the ball, you know, so to speak. He said, can you make this plan? Let's get it going. We, I've drilled, like, I've, in the last year, the last couple of years, I've probably drilled, I don't know, 15, 20 times using this new um, community air monitoring plan. We call it the camp. So, okay. the Yeah, the camp. Uh, this community air monitoring plan, um, you know, it, it involves um, analytical... Uh, and or real time samples of these chemical constituents in air and the purpose is to um, identify and quantify those airborne chemicals that um, we can use as a baseline essentially to establish um, the optimum level of protection needed for a community. So that, that those data then are used to inform all of the stakeholders uh, in the unified command, Um, and they're used to evaluate and make decisions, inform decisions about um, the health and safety of community members. So all of our plans now include this. And in fact, we we separated them um, to an entirely separate plan. So the site assessment or plan is now separate from the community air monitoring plan um, because they're just, they're very different objectives.
0: Well, we're out there monitoring the air within the community. Maybe we've identified some locations and we've we've set some, some area rays or uh, versions of those kinds of devices that I can set in place and, and leave for 72 hours, 96 hours to, to grab samples. The planet's polluted. It's not just my release, right? That's out there.
1: That's right.
0: How, how do we... How do we feel? I mean, if I stand on the side of the freeway with my monitor, I'm gonna get VOC readings, am I not?
1: You are, you will. Um, In fact, that's, so any any good plan and anyone who's taken um, field assessment or site assessment courses or continuing education will know that you should always have some, at least one, um, ideally more than one background sample. So we call them a background, meaning what is in the air normally that is not affected by your incident. And so sometimes you have to go quite a, a distance away from the incident in order to be able to get an effective background concentration, um, it, it, which can be difficult. So for example, if you're down in um, California, um, at you know, there's a particular uh, refinery that is uh, pretty close to a, a large city and you can go out on the street in the proximity to this refinery and there's traffic all around. So you get VOC readings associated in, and those VOC readings will um, peak around, you know, time in the afternoon and then they'll drop way down in the evening. And so it's directly correlated with traffic right in that area. So you want to make sure that you get an effective background concentration and know what is associated with your response versus what may be associated with with other um, sources, external sources to your response.
0: Would it make sense then if I'm a fixed facility to do that kind of air monitoring in advance and establish over a period of time what my background readings are?
1: Yes, yes, Dan. In fact, they call it fence line monitoring. So a lot of companies have established what they call fence line monitoring um, to essentially get. There's the, so they serve a lot of pr- serves a lot of purposes. This type of fence line is just just as you would imagine the the word how it describe how it's described is setting up different types of air monitors along the property lines you know, to be able to understand um, what are the background levels of uh, chemicals or constituents in the air um, near your facility. So you can monitor those. You can know whether they're seasonally affected. You can know whether they're affected by wildfires, um, you know, moving into your area. You, you, there's a lot of different things. If you're, If you are a neighbor, if you're an adjacent neighbor to a different company, some of this fence line monitor can also help serve to inform them of potential uh, a potential incident on their site, too, on your neighbor's site versus on your site. so there's there's a lot of good things that can be and good information that can be gleaned from this type of fence line monitoring um, to be able to understand what are the backgrounds. So if I haven't happens.
0: done it in advance. It must be really difficult at the time of of an event to go ahead and try to establish that background. in the the has left the barn, so to speak.
1: Yes. Yeah. It can be. It can be. Um. You. You. That's where you really have to rely upon um mobile, mobile uh, roaming or mobile metering, if you will. So you have to have people there who can go to, find, you know, move to a location where you wouldn't have an impact from your chemicals and then establish a, a baseline.
0: Where would the CTH personnel doing this work fit into the command post, into the incident command structure? Would I put you, if I activate you for my response, do I put you in the environmental unit? Do I put you in safety? Where do you fall?
1: It depends on what state you're in, Dan, because as you know, uh, Washington Department of Ecology um, tends to put air, community air monitoring into the environmental unit. Um, however, in most other states, we end up being in safety. So it it, it kind of depends on where you are. It it makes a lot of sense. What what I usually do um, either on drills or responses is we'll set up in the environmental unit and then we'll have a liaison. Um, if, I have, if I have a, a partner with me, um, we'll essentially straddle safety and environmental unit and ha- be, just be in constant communication with the two units so that everyone is uh, kept informed of any changes in, in air monitoring.
0: Or so you at. Uh... Are you a strike team? are you a task force? I mean you're within either safety or environment environmental, but you you kind of your own unit lead. How does that work?
1: I know it's it's interesting. so i I created a communications flowchart just for this and just to be able to explain um, what so our our official home is for community air monitoring, our official home is typically an environmental unit um, for we usually for Oregon, Washington, California. Um, And but then the reporting requirements, uh, we report directly to environmental unit lead. We also report directly to safety officer, you know, for the incident. So there's that's it's as per the requirements for the Washington community, for the camp, the Washington Community Air Monitoring Plan, you have to have a reporting requirement. So you have to say who you're gonna report to. And it's a really good way to just keep everybody honest, make sure you're doing what you need to do during an incident and you're telling the people that need to know, um, keeping everyone informed of of the uh, community air monitoring results. So yeah, there's definitely reporting to safety. There's, there's some reporting to um, uh, field operations as well, especially when you're talking about community air monitoring. So if you have a field um, lead too. So if you, if you see data coming in in a certain area um, that reflects increasing concentrations, you may send and deploy additional resources to that particular area to make sure that we understand um, the scope and the scale of, of uh, the chemical readings that we're seeing.
0: Does the situation unit leader often give you a piece within situation briefings to speak about community air monitoring or do you pass that information to the situation unit leader and let them brief out on your behalf?
1: Um, Both, both. It depends on the response. Um, Oftentimes, so I responded to an incident in uh, Washington state about a year ago um, right near Christmas. And so I was one of the first people there. So it was, we were there. I was there very early. And so it was, it was me briefing everybody, um, for, for about a day. Um, so in, and actually in, in drills, it's both too. So in drills, we definitely have, um, reported directly. I've spoken in tactics meetings, um, spoken in press conferences. Um, there's it's it's all over the place. So it depends on who it is uh, from CTH that's there. Um, it depends on the client. The client, some clients are have a really well established um, uh, incident management structure within their company. and they have people who ha- train and drill, for these particular roles um, in in the IC in the incident command structure, and then other companies that don't, and they just want you to take over and help them, um, and that's fine too. Both work.
0: When you arrived early on scene, what what do you bring with you? Are you carrying some uh, handheld monitors? What's your yes. What's your go kit look like? My go
1: kit. Okay, so. My go kit. I had like I usually have um, a multi ray, uh, P from you know my my four gas meter. I have um, a ppb ray. Um, I used, uh, sometimes I'll carry uh, various um, uh, uh, filters with them. So if I need to measure chlorine versus um, hydrogen sulfide, I have different um, sensors that I can input into my four gas meter. The ppb ray is, is Strictly for benzene, I use strictly for benzene, um, and then I also have uh, uh, an AM520 um, that I use for particulate matter. depends on depends on if there's fire or not too. So if there is fire, usually always carry um, a whole gas tech kit that has a series of lots of different types of um, the little glass gas tech tubes that'll tell you there it's it's a it's nice. It doesn't require any batteries. It's just a, a air pulling through a tube. And then it's usually a chlorometric sensor um, that you can evaluate to determine concentration of a chemical. So we use those, for example, for, um, uh, you know, certain, certain types of chemicals that are not going to be seen or don't have good correction factors. Um, or on your meters, on your four gas meters. We also, I also bring um, air sampling media. We have pumps. Um, we have the, for example, the um, MCE filters. We can filter for. We can set up um, daisy chained filters for um, PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So especially That's a if mouthful. yeah, yeah, right. PAHs. and there's fire. <laughs> you know that char on a steak. Think think char on a steak. That's, that's that's full of pHs, and it's it's delicious, but it's full of pHs. So um, there's definitely um, depends on the scenario, depends on the chemical. Um, usually, we'll we'll have a brief stop by the office to grab um, anything in particular that we need that we know is is non-standard.
0: Well, it's about all the time we've got today, but is there uh, anything else that you comes to mind you'd like to share before we go.
1: I feel like having um, a trusted partner in this in emergency response is is important um, and it's important for a lot of reasons beyond, you know, all of the cool gadgets that we have and that we've talked about and the mechanisms to measure but it's important because um, y- when it's your worst day, you know, you're, you've you had an incident, you know, maybe there are injuries, maybe there are even fatalities, you know, heaven forbid, but you don't wanna be thinking about, um, you know, networking and, and talking to, you know, being the liaison between the, the regulatory agency and your company. Um, you have a lot of other things to worry about and communications that need to be made. And so having that trusted partner ahead of time, can give you a lot of, can give you peace of mind, um, not only with respect to the, the load of work, but it also with respect to any downstream effects. So at minimizing your liability, later on, if you have somebody who's going to create a very robust sampling plan for you, who's going to create, um, you know, defensible data um, that that can be shared rapidly with all of the stakeholders um, that can be used to make informed decisions um, for the particular incident is invaluable. Um, So I think, I, I guess what I've learned through my time at CTEH is, is how how important um, how important it is for us to be responsive to our clients and to be cognizant of all of the different stresses and pressures that are being put on them during an incident and to be able to um, help them as best we can. So it's 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 been really um, gratifying. Uh, experience to to be able to work in this space.
0: I like that phrase, defensible data.
1: Defensible, right. right.
0: Defensible data. You know, mm-hmm. People show up with a, an air monitor in their hands, and as you pointed out early in the program, I, I don't know when it was calibrated. Uh, I don't know what the condition of the sensors are. I don't know what the level of training the operators had. I was down in uh Louisiana after Katrina and we were doing some tank cleaning after the barges had had uh Louisiana light sweet crude oil I mean we knew what the contaminant was they'd been full of crude oil now we're going to do tank cleaning and these people have been hired to do the work and these tanks are about 60 feet deep they got like 10 feet of sample hose
1: oh wow right
0: and we all know that the vapors coming off of petroleum hydrocarbons are all heavier than air so where is the hazard going to be bottom of that tank but that's not what they're measuring for and i asked them when they calibrated the instrument and they're like what and so there you are right that's not defensible data it's not defensible
1: right that's the way people that's how people get that's how how they
0: died that's how we get these confined space accidents uh Mm -hmm. every year like the one in florida two years ago where three workers all died Uh, They responded to the uh, community complaints of rotten egg odor coming from a stormwater drain. Mm. And they opened up the stormwater drain like, that stinks. Wait, oh, not so much anymore,
1: right? A little training.
0: Hydrogen saturation. Yeah, right. They numbed out their olfactory nerves. They didn't smell anymore. It wasn't gone.
1: And Mm -hmm. one
0: after the other, they went down into the space and all three of them died. So training and defensible data is is what it's all about. That's why I have a contract with CTEH and why I'm excited to be including you in our drills and exercises going forward.
1: Thank you, Dan. I appreciate that.
0: Dr. Andy Perez, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the tactics meeting.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun.